Thanks again, guys. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Good to see you all. And um, if you're back for the hundredth time or if it's your first time uh, or anything in between, glad to have you guys uh, with us today. Uh, for our preaching time right now at the church, we are in between series. So uh, we uh, finished a book series in uh, the book of First Thessalonians in December and then had some Advent stuff going on. And we'll be in kind of an open mic mode, we call it, for a few weeks where we do some miscellaneous stuff that the pastors, elders want to preach on themselves. Uh, until the end, of the end of the month, this month now, which will be our uh, beginning of, of Genesis. We're going to start booking Genesis in uh, a few weeks now, which we're really excited about, and we'll hear a lot more about that in coming weeks. Uh, but I think it'll be the 24th, that's, that's a Sunday? I think that's the start date or soon thereafter. So, uh, But until then, uh, some open mic uh, things going on, and I'm going to do a, it's a one-week series today in the book of Psalms. So I can call it a series or not. I guess literally you can't, can you? Series is more than one, but I'm going to just call it a series anyway. I don't know what else to call it. So uh, one sermon on uh, Psalm, the Psalms, uh, Psalm 25 today, the solace of grace, uh, I think is the main idea, at least the idea we're going to be pulling from, uh, from it. So a uh, quick crash course in the Psalms, if the Psalms are a, a new thing to you, it's an Old Testament book, a collection of 150 Psalms collected into what we call the Psalter, but uh, the book uh, is called the Psalms in our Bibles. Um, it's, uh, it's one of five wisdom books of the Old Testament, uh, what, and what are, they're essentially, there's a lot of ways to define them, but they're essentially prophetic songs uh, written between 1400 B.C. and 1000 B.C., primarily by King David, though there are some other authors as well. And so I say prophetic songs because, one, they're songs, they're poetic uh, songs that um, are, are prayers, and two, they, like all Old Testament literature, point beyond themselves to Christ. Uh, Gerald H. Wilson says about the Psalms, in the Christian New Testament, no book is cited more often as a warrant for understanding Jesus and his life, and I would add New Testament theology more broadly, than the book of Psalms. So it's a great exercise if you're ever interested in doing this or if you find yourself reading when a psalm is quoted in the New Testament, is just to take note of how they're using that psalm. Every single time, it's about Christ or some kind of New Testament reality. So they never quote the New Testament authors uh, never quote the Old Testament Psalms uh, in some kind of let's, you know, this is a manual for how to pray or something like that, though it's not wrong to do. It's never quoted uh, as such. It's always about Christ, about his life, about his sufferings, about the gospel um, ahead of time. And so, so as Christians then, I think that's important for us to apply it that way as well and read it that way. We're going to practice this today in a sense. Uh, so if that's a teaching component to today for you, that's great. It's the main thing we're going to do today, but you'll see how one way to do it with Psalm 25. But but as Christians in general, we don't simply apply the Psalms to our lives immediately for our comfort. That can happen, but only after the fact. What's most important is to go past ourselves to seeing Jesus in them. Uh, principles of grace, or seeing how the Psalms, or the particular Psalm we're looking at, is helping tell the story of Christ prophetically ahead of time. And then we get comfort from him. So it's, it's one thing to get comfort directly from the Psalm. That's possible. Uh, but not the main thing. It's, it's more likely that we'll get, and more the point is, that we'll get comfort from the figures of, of speech that refer to Christ, the types, the images, the foreshadowings, the whispers of the good news of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection beforehand through prophetic song. So um, lots of ways that occurs, and we're going to look at one, a couple of ways actually today that occurs, but there, there are more. It's not always this cookie-cutter way of doing this, but you'll see some ways it plays out today. So with all this said, uh, let's read Psalm 25. Uh, today's a great psalm, one of my uh, personal favorites, actually. 
It's been uh, the inspiration, as a lot of psalms are, for a lot of uh, church historical and modern-day hymns and other types of gospel songs, too. And so if you know some of them, you might hear them as I read the, as I read the psalm because they, they use portions of this, those songs do, uh, verbatim. So, uh, but basically, this, this is a psalm of distress. So have that in mind, at least when, you're, uh, when we're reading this. Understand that David, the author, King David, is in distress. Like a lot of the psalms he writes, that's the context. We'll talk more about that in a minute, more specifically. But basically, he's in distress and he's praying. Uh, but it's, so it's a prayer for help, but maybe not in the way that you might imagine. And so when you think about someone asking God for help or just being in a, in a place of needing help and praying, um, you know, something might come to mind that might fit here or it, or it might not. I think he prays in a way that's uh, pretty, in some ways, revolutionary. I'm guessing it's going to be paradigm shifting for at least some of you uh, today or a good reminder of how to pray in some ways or what our main priorities are, spiritually speaking, before the God of the universe on a, on a daily basis. And, and so uh, we'll cross those bridges when we, when we get there. But, but have at least in mind, it's a prayer of, prayer of distress. Uh, so Psalm 25, uh, verses 0 to uh, 22. Verse, ver, the verse zeros uh, in um, the Psalms are, are there for a reason. They're not edited in. They're uh, written in, uh, usually a, a signifier of the author or the context, uh, sometimes both of the Psalms. So this one just uh, written by, by David. So Psalm 25. Be on screen here. Of David. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love for they have been from old, from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions according to your steadfast love. Remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the, out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. O oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O oh God, out of all his troubles. All right, a little uh, context here on David. So I mentioned him before, a little context in regards to the psalm itself and how to read the psalms, but a little bit more on David, the author. Uh, David was, in many ways, the greatest king of Israel in the Old Testament, lived around 1,000 uh, B.C. To, uh, I think he reigned from 1,000 to 960 B.C., roughly, in there for 40 years. But um, greatest king of Israel that God covenanted with and promised ultimately Christ through. Special thing, doesn't, doesn't do that for any other king. He, co he covenants with in a special manner, and reaffirms promises of Christ uh, ahead of time. 
uh, that he already had done earlier in the story in a little bit more nebulous kinds of ways, but reaffirms them through David and basically says, you know, through you I'm going to establish an, an earthly and eternal kingdom that will bring peace and blessing to, to the nations. Uh, and so uh, Christ then being the, the, the ultimate harbinger of that, uh, being in the, in the line of David genealogically but also spiritually, uh, Christ resembles him. And so we'll see that a lot in the Psalms, how even a little bit today, though it comes out a little bit more in other Psalms, how Jesus, when we say he's the son of David, we don't just mean that genealogically. Uh, we mean that in a resemblance kind of manner, like a, a grandson would kind of uh, not just be like his grandfather genealogically, but kind of resemble him a little bit. So Christ resembles those who come before him, not just David, but a lot of the kind of these key patriarchal and kingly and priestly and prophetic figures of the Old Testament. They, they point ahead to Christ, not just with their words, but their actions and their lifestyle. And so David then, with uh, his suffering, uh, does, does that too. And that's the one thing I want you to know today about David, though there's a ton of stuff we could talk about, is uh, one thing about David's story is that he is also known as the premier example of suffering, of, of a suffering and, re and rejected king in the Bible. The premier example of a suffering and rejected uh, king. Chosen by God, but rejected by the people, especially those of the house of Saul. Saul was the king before him. Saul wanted his life and, and sought it on multiple occasions. Uh, so rejected by him, but later is actually his own sons. So he's rejected not just by uh, the king before him, who's jealous of his rise, but his sons who stage a coup against him. Kind of a bad day when that occurs. Uh, but his, uh, his life, again, sought through them as well on more than one occasion. He wrestled deeply with sin, murder, and adultery, and subsequent concern about reconciliation with God. So lots of psychological anguish, too. You can see that come out in, uh, in the Psalms. He sees more than one of his children die, so he loses his kids, uh, some of his kids, and one in particular uh, of his sons when he was uh, very young, an infant, and, and died. So, and there's more. But, but basically then, Psalm 25 is a prayer song of a guy who is suffering deeply, written out of this kind of context. We don't have a specific context for Psalm 25 like some of the Psalms do, but it's like kind of the broad you know, life and times of David. <laughs> you could say, that, that these, a lot of these psalms are written out of, and Psalm 25 is, is one of them. So it is not at all an overstatement to say that, that uh, life just flat out sucked for David. It was over and over and over again, and that is not, and that actually, just to put it very mildly, uh, from guilt and shame and trial and trouble and extreme distress and external and physical threat from enemies. He says, I am violently hated at one point in this psalm uh, from guilt to all of those things, all, all of that serves as a context for the song as it does for some of his other psalms too. So, but again, uh, going back to what I was saying before, uh, more than just a manual on how to pray, that though it can be copied, I encourage you guys to do that if you're stuck in prayer sometimes, is copy the words of the psalm. Open up your Bible. I, I just find in prayer sometimes that I don't know what I need and I don't know what to say. I don't have words for it and I just don't know what my ultimate needs are, but, but God does. And I know them through the Bible and so opening the Bible to a psalm or another part of the Bible and actually praying those words over yourself or someone else or your church or just directly to God is uh, one of the best things I've ever done for prayer um, in my life. Uh, so I encourage you guys in that. So it can be used as that, but more than that, uh, this is a psalm rich with gospel of Jesus Christ imagery, New Testament theology. It's, it's ultimately theology. In other words, it's about God. It's more about Jesus than it is us. And then by extension, it's about us when we see ourselves as the beneficiaries of the grace and love of God that's being talked about in the Psalms. So 
With this in mind, uh, here's a few things today that I had, and there's so much, but a few big things, I think. In fact, one big thing, to boil it down to one big thing, we'll start with, and two things that kind of hang off that or flow out from the headwaters of that. Uh, but the first thing here is the, the bigger thing. But they're all things that point ahead, a thousand years ahead, to uh, Jesus Christ and him crucified and raised, where God, in that way, covenanted with sinners and said, this is how I'm going to save you through, uh, through my son. We get whispers of that here prophetically. So... The first, again, and I think the biggest thing here, the most, I think, in in one sense, insightful and just profound and paradigm-shifting thing for us, and this will be true on different levels here in the room, but is that uh, over and over again, David talks about and prays and sings about a spiritual remedy to a physical problem. A spiritual remedy to the physical problems and trials and troubles and anguishes that he has in his life. It's one of the more intriguing aspects, I think, to Psalm 25 and a lot of the ways that David prays is how exactly he prays in light of his physical distress. So like being surrounded by enemies, for example. What does he say in light of that? So the guy looks out his window and sees you know, a, a coup coming to kill him or whatever, or, just whatever the, or he's sick or he's psychologically traumatized or whatever it is. And, and what does he say? What's he think about? Who is God in, in that moment? It's, it's profound. So, so he is in spiritual distress as well. And actually, that's actually the point we'll tie into spiritual distresses here uh, in, uh, in a second, but his physical issues make him go somewhere in prayer that, again, I think is super insightful and maybe a bit of tad, maybe a tad offensive for some, especially those not in Christ yet, uh, to kind of see David prioritize things in prayer this way uh, is, I think, at the least paradigm shifting, at the most offensive. Uh, you'll see here in a second, maybe pick that up when we read it, but, um, but regardless... This is all from the heart of a guy, I think, who really understands what his biggest problem in life really is. There is such a thing as a hierarchy of problems in life. And that that probably goes without saying, uh, but in case it doesn't, there you go. Uh, There's such a thing as a hierarchy of problems. There are bigger problems and smaller problems in life. And a lot of times we don't know how to organize that well in in our minds. Uh, We we think that our biggest problems are actually kind of medium-sized problems or pretty small problems. And the order of our souls, the chaos or the lack thereof that we experience in our life is directly linked a lot of times to how, we, to how healthy of a hierarchy of problems we have in light of what the scriptures are saying. And so it's really important to get that right. And David is an example of a guy who really, really uh, gets that right, even to just almost crazy uh, extremes. Not off the deep end like I'm wrong extremes, but just crazy dudes just applying this really well kind of extremes. So uh, so let's just see examples of this. First is verse 18, uh, and I'll mention 19 and 16 here uh, as well, kind of out of order there, but verse 18 is a wonderful snapshot of this. It says, consider my physical affliction and my physical trouble and forgive all my sins. See the progression there? Consider everything physical that's going on around me that threatens me and forgive me my sins. Then in verse 19, consider how many are my physical enemies, my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. But then he says this, Oh, but oh, guard my soul and deliver my soul. Deliver me. And then in verse 16, Turn to me and be gracious to me for or because I'm lonely and afflicted. So flip that around. I'm lonely, I'm afflicted, I have physical problems in my life right now. So because of that, turn to me and show me your grace. Be close to me or just save me. Save me. Forgive me and show me your love. 
This is amazing. This is a, an amazing kind of ordering or hierarchy out of, of problems here. He's placing sin and his distance from God, or uh, you know, he's, he's close, he's living by faith, so he's saved in that regard, even from an Old Testament sense. But he, he's seen the problem of sin, the enemy of sin, the threat of sin and death, and his hard-heartedness towards God as the biggest problem uh, in life. I think it was G.K. Chesterton who said, when asked, what's the biggest problem of the world? He said, I am. You remember that one? Sorry, it's a good one. But it's that idea that I'm the biggest problem in the world. So I see problems out there, enemies out there, but the biggest thing in the world that's, it's the biggest problem in the world is actually not really out there. It's embedded right here in, uh, in my heart. So David speaks and writes and sings in the spirit of that. But this is, again, this is really amazing that he's, and challenging, and again, for some of you, probably a bit offensive. For all of us, a bit uh, offensive here in the way he's trying to, to focus in, in prayer. It's as if David's physical troubles in life remind him of his spiritual troubles, his truest needs. His physical enemies that seek his life uh, clearly here make him think about his truer enemy, which is sin, which wants his life even more. He knows this. And so he prays accordingly and writes accordingly. And he, he prays for the latter. This would be like someone suffering from chronic migraines, uh, not really praying for the migraines to go away, though it's not wrong to do that, but praying instead for a healing of his or her sins. Or someone who's experiencing historic flooding, beginning to lose his house, and not praying for the floods to subside, though that's fine to do that, but not really praying that, but rather praying for deliverance from the flood of his or her own hard-heartedness and propensity to not trust in God enough. Or it'd be like someone on the brink of divorce praying that God would not divorce them. So not praying that divorce would subside, though it's good to do that. It's not just praying that, but praying, and, and just in prayer, remembering that God promised to never divorce us and thanking him for that. And remembering that uh, our transgressions are not remembered before him anymore because of the blood of Christ. Or like someone who's threatened by another person, pray not so much against the threat, but that God would destroy their sins. Uh, it's not the persons, though we can pray for the person too, but actually using that context as, as a, kind of a, a look into, a peering into the heart of the, uh, the person being threatened, in this case David, and seeing sin as the bigger attack, the bigger threat, and asking God to forgive them all their transgressions. This is akin to how, and Jesus does this too, not, not in the, uh, um, Jesus is perfect, he has, he's never sinned, and so he's not on that side of the thing, he's not like David, but uh, this is akin to how Jesus uh, forgives, like in Mark 2, when he forgives a paralytic his sin before he heals him physically. You guys remember that story? So he's brought a paralytic and through the roof, lower, he's lowered down through the roof, and his friends bring him and, to Jesus because they can't get through the crowds, and, and Jesus looks at him and forgives him his sin first. And it's just kind of like, offensive uproar the pharisees the religious rulers are saying who can do that you don't have authority to do that and probably other people are thinking well that's great but you know dot 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 what about the, what about the legs you know the paralysis here it's kind of why we're here almost feeling bad about that at that point but but jesus does do that there's a priority though there's a hierarchy of problems clearly clearly in jesus's ministry a hierarchy of problems paralysis is not the biggest problem in his life sin is and so in that sense jesus is davidic He's Psalm 25-ish. He, he's, he's doing the exact same thing kind of in ministry, in ministry form uh, to what David is praying in Psalm 25. Uh, some of you guys might be aware of the old hymn. We'll sing this later. Uh, it is well, written by Horatio Spafford. 
um, what in the mid-1800s. What, what you might not be aware of is the context for uh, when the hymn was written. Uh, the, the context is that Horatio lost his four daughters on a boat accident across the Atlantic. He got a uh, note from his uh, wife that just said, saved alone. So his wife was there and she was spared, but uh, saved alone. So his four daughters uh, drown and, uh, and they die. It inspired him to write the hymn. And, uh, and there's a lot in the hymn, but it, the, the main chorus um, includes these lines. It says, my sin, so that's the backdrop to what he's saying here, losing his daughters. He says, my sin, oh, the bliss, and then he kind of digresses, the bliss of this glorious thought. Then he comes back. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Essentially, in light of all my trouble, this blissful thought is what I'm holding on to. That's what he's writing here. Not that it would have been wrong for him to pray or sing more about deliverance from his grief. It's not a b bad prayer. It's just not the, the top of the, the hierarchy of what his biggest needs in life are. And so it comes out in a very Psalm 25-ish kind of, it sounds just like David here. In terms of, like he's got these physical, huge, huge physical problems and, and that are important to address. And in other Psalms, he prays more explicitly actually for those things. But here, uh, in Psalm 25, prays instead for his sin in, in light of them. Horatio does the same thing. But I think the question we have to ask here, we'll, come, we'll, we'll explain this as we go, but that, that confronts us, actually, in this psalm and in this hymn. So David and Horatio Spafford is, the question is, what makes a man write these words right after such enormous physical tragedy? What causes a guy to say this? to prioritize this way, to almost point where you're thinking, why aren't you mentioning this over here? You've clearly left out something pretty big here, right? You almost wanted to say that, but, but David's not, certainly, and he's not making a mistake here, and, and Horatio's speaking from his heart. I think two things, it's, and it could be more, but I think it's a man who truly understands what his biggest problem in life really is. That kind of man writes this, uh, this, uh, this song and this psalm. A man who truly understands what his biggest problem in life is, number one, and two, what will make him happy amidst trial. He calls this thought bliss. Bliss. It's a heavenly thought. It gives him peace. It doesn't take all his grief away instantly, but amidst the grief, it's a grounding of joy that helps him, helps him to get through it. So for Horatio, David looks ahead to this. Horatio knows this because he's in the New Covenant era, in our era, namely Christ and him crucified. Christ and him crucified. So his tragedy pointed him, like it did for David, to the tragedy of his sin and the tragedy and, and glory of the cross where God died for humankind. Exactly again like it, is, uh, like it is for David. The psalm says again, consider my trouble, consider my trouble, but really forgive me my sin, he says, he says here. So like in Romans 8 too where Paul says, our present sufferings, are there, but they're really not worth comparing to future resurrected glory because that's so much greater. So let's talk a little bit more about this gospel. So um, these next two things, I guess one of, one of the main things going on, but let's talk more about the bliss of this glorious thought, more about the gospel that, uh, and I, I mentioned before how Psalm 25 points ahead. There are other ways it does that, so I just picked out a couple of things that I think are especially um, 
significant, but there are uh, more than this too. But first thing is, when he says, to speaking to God, remember your love, not my sin. Remember your love and your goodness, your steadfast love, your love that you promised would never leave your people, uh, but don't remember my sin, or essentially, he invites God to forget his sin. Uh, verses 7 and 6 says, again, remember your mercy, O Lord, your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. And so one of the reasons why I think David here, or at least God through him, has um, the future from his vantage point in history, the future in mind and not the present, or in other words, the New Testament that Jesus brings into the world, the new covenant way of God relating to people and not the old way, is that the old system, the Old Testament, was not built on the idea of God forgetting our sin. Uh, rather, animal sacrifices and moral law requirements that uh, occurred daily and was required of people to stay in covenant with God uh, could not be, uh, then that they couldn't be kept. Uh, th- those two things alike reminded people of their sin on a, on, a, on a daily basis. And so sin wasn't really being dealt with. When, when an animal was sacrificed for for people, it was, uh, it was kind of a, this temporary placeholding mini-grace that God gave people, but it was never meant to last. It was meant to point ahead to something better that would surpass it, Christ and him crucified. So the blood of bulls and goats, Hebrews 9 says, could never take away sins. Animals can't die for you. You're a person. You're not an animal. So God became a human being later in history to die for human beings. It's just one for one, but, but not, just a, not just a human being, the Son of God who actually had the authority and power and ability to bear the sins of the world when, when he died. So, but in the Old Testament, you have all that going on as it approaches the new, but you also have this constant reminder of sin when sacrifice wasn't working. Another argument that the book of Hebrews makes in the New Testament is, if sacrifice was working, there wouldn't have been need to repeat it. Uh, the repetition of sacrifice proved that it was a failure. Otherwise, you'd do it once, and that'd be it. It worked. Sins atoned for, gone. We can approach God, end of history, usher in everything, final party of, of eternity, done. But it didn't happen. But rather, daily sacrifices were needed. And in that, it, so it gave this kind of mini grace of God's providing something here for me to kind of approach him, but it also was this constant thing in your face of your sin is back. And you need a death to atone for it yet again, just like you did this morning. An animal has to die for you because your sin is that bad. So there's a constant, constant reminder of sin and, and the moral law, the Ten Commandments that could not be kept. wasn't the point that they be kept. Uh, the point was that uh, they, um, that as Romans 5 says, that it, that it would increase sins, that people would look elsewhere for a Redeemer, not themselves and their ability, but ultimately to God and what he has to do in a different kind of way in the future, again, namely Christ. But, but again, Hebrews 10.3, kind of got ahead of myself there, uh, says, the idea of divine forgetfulness here as it relates to our sin is a New Testament thing. Hebrews 10.3 in the New Testament says Old Testament sacrifices were a regular reminder of sin. Just regular reminder of sin. But here's what the New Testament says. In Jeremiah 31.34, speaking ahead again the Old Testament about the New Testament, then Hebrews 10.17, uh, it says, this is the new, God speaking, this is the new covenant that I will make with them, my people, after those days, the days of the Old Testament being, being completed, declares the Lord. And this is, this is the essence of it. I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. 
Not possible in the old way, possible in the new way. And, and, and David prays this. Isn't that an amazingly blissful thought? And think about it for a second. Anything you've ever done in thought, word, or deed because of Christ, because of this new covenant way of God fixing the problem of sin inside the hearts of his people, you, it, it'll actually be so much dealt with. There'll be no more sacrifice, no more need for priesthood, no more need for any kind of cleansing. Christ will do all of that in a once-for-all kind of way. He will die. He will atone. He will fix. He will abrogate sin. He will deliver he will redeem, and in all of that, God will forget sin. So that's true for you guys right now if you're in Christ. God is not, when he looks at you, he sees his son. When he looks at you, he sees perfection. Not because you've done anything to turn his head whatsoever in your morality, but because he has just simply loved you from before, from before the ages, before time began, he set out in his son to become like you, to die for you, knowing you would go this way, but knowing he would chase you down and die for your sins. And it's so much dealt with that he's, that he's forgotten it. There's another psalm that says, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far God takes, his, takes our sin away from us, which is an unmeasurable distance, right? He forgets, he removes. That's, that's Christianity. That's, that's unprecedented. That's not religion. That, that's what we have to look forward to at, at, at that last day when Christ comes back, is not our sin before us, but rather Christ around us. And in us, we have no, there's no fear, right, in that. How can we fear if we have that type of relationship now with, uh, with the God of the universe? So probably what Psalm 25 is doing then is it isn't encouraging the church in that fact right there. That's the gospel, you guys. That's what's true for you. And if it's not true for you yet today, it can be true for you right now if you believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. It's so far removed that God forgets. So believe that. And don't worship your sin either. Don't make it a bigger deal. If God's, if God's erasing it, don't worship it. Confess it. Leave it behind. Have the joy of the Lord in your heart. You are his son and daughter. You're not a slave. Yeah, you're, you're not in an old covenant kind of way, just sort of entrenched in your sin anymore. He actually does free. And so going back to Psalm 25, this is why I think David has, at least in part, probably kind of both covenants, but both testaments. I think he's looking ahead here with the help of the Spirit of God, helping him to pen these words in this way. He's basically, he's basically saying, God, in the Old Testament system, because when he's living, God, go beyond what was possible, what is possible in the Old Testament. Do something so that you'll actually forget my sin. Sacrifice, law, not working. Do something where you'll actually not remember it, because that's not possible here. I see it. I'm confronted with it. Every, it keeps coming back. I wash myself cleansing rites. I sacrifice an animal. I try hard to maintain the law before you, but I'm constantly, constantly, constantly barraged and beaten down by the law and my sin. And so David's prayer here, fascinatingly, goes beyond uh, the Old Testament uh, to hoping for the new. And, uh, and that's what's so beautiful, beautiful about it. So, so David hopes by looking ahead, but it's this reality for us uh, looking back, God remembers his love and mercy for us, not our sin. That's the blissful thought here. Um, and, and hard to fear. And that's, you know, First John, I forgot to look it up. Something, something. Uh, I said the same thing first service, but it's in First John somewhere. Uh, it talks about God's perfect love driving out fear. Love and fear are like oil and water. If we're grounded in 
the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. It's, it's not as though we'll never fear, but it's really hard to fear in a paralyzed kind of way. It's really hard. Because we believe Jesus walked out of that tomb. And we believe that there's nothing that held God back from chasing us down and saving us. That he literally went to hell for us. Like he experienced hell on the cross and came back from it three days later and, and won us back. So perfect love uh, drives out fear. And I think this is partly why David is doing this. It's not just because it's the right way to think and pray, but he just wants to be happy. He, he wants the blissful thought uh, he, amidst his grief and his sorrow, which he's certainly still had mourning his daughters, but he wants that blissful, grounded, who is God again? What does he think of me? Who am I to him? What's my future hold? What hope do I have? All, all these are things we have to be constantly, robustly thinking about as Christians, or we will, we will not be happy. We will not have the blissful, the blissful thought, whether we're in a great time of life or it's just a terrible time of life. We won't be grounded in those things. And so David's kind of like he's taking himself through that again in prayer and asking God for help um, in, it, in it as well. So, All right, that's the second thing. Remember your love, not my sin. The third is the mention of guilt and shame. So David says, pardon my guilt, for it is great. So just stop right there for a second. David believes he is an incredibly wicked sinner. Pardon my guilt, for it is great. Is that part of your prayer before God on a daily basis? Would you say these same things even now? Do you believe that? We'll come back to that. And then second, let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. Let me not be put to shame as well. So essentially, pardon my guilt and, and take away my shame. Uh, some cultures, you guys might be aware, are a little bit more guilt-focused uh, and some are more shame-focused. <clears throat> Past... Uh, several decades to hundreds of years now. Western cultures have been a little bit more guilt-driven uh, guilt and uh, Eastern cultures a little bit more shame-driven. That's a, that's a gross generality. I think all have um, both. Uh, but this is another reason why the cross, I think, is so beautiful, is that um, God, the Bible says there, takes our guilt upon himself when he dies for us. He bears our, our sin, but he also bears our shame. Uh, Christ bore shame the Bible says, on, on the cross. Shame over sin or, or shame in terms of like what's happened to us in, in our life, whether it's something we've done or something that's been done to us. Our guilt's placed on him, but again, so is, he becomes shameful for us, essentially, on, on the cross. But more than that, when we realize that when we're looking at the cross, we're essentially seeing God say to us, everything is okay now between us. I'm completely forgetting the past. Nothing you've ever done or are doing or will do will separate my love from you. That's what we're seeing when we look at the cross. When you believe that and you have shame over sin, it's hard to really hold. Your, your shame becomes slippery at that point. It's hard to hold on to it because you know that it's, it's completely done. I mean, think about this on a horizontal level between people. Maybe some of you had this experience. <clears throat> We've had this at the church a lot. And this is one of the reasons why the church can be such a great image to God's love in destroying shame when we do this for each other. But you know, when people have confessed really, really deep things to me or I to them, but in context here at the church, uh, just confessed really deep sin, uh, big things, and they have shame over it. You know, when, when I or someone else can put my arm around them and say God loves you and God forgives you, and it, it's just, it's okay, it's really okay, then, then afterwards, um, 
Just pray for them, lead them back to Christ, and just treat them very normally. Like, we're in community together. We're, we're, they can laugh. They're, we're friends. We go out to eat. We don't really talk about that thing much anymore, unless they want to, or, or it's a thing they're really working on or something. It's a place to talk about it, but we don't really, like, hold it over them. Uh, that's, that's how shame is destroyed. Grace and love destroy shame. It's really the only way to, to be free of shame. Law can't do that. If, if, if we're in a covenant with someone, a relationship with someone, there's, there's no forgiveness, but there's this uh, thing over the relationship where you have to act this way uh, or else. You have to, or the, the one person who's the offended party kind of holds the sin over that person. Shame, right? There's no authenticity there. There's no closeness. There's always distance. It's, so it's, it's true on a horizontal level with people. How much more with God? He's erased our guilt on the cross and our shame. He's borne our guilt and our shame in the sense that he's said, everything's okay. I've forgotten your sin already. I've so much erased it. I've so much absorbed it into myself and bore it. My justice has been done. My mercy's been poured out. That now you just dine at my table and eat. There's this uh, story in regards to David and uh, I think it's 2 Samuel 9 where there's this um, son of Saul, his enemy. Uh, Saul's dead at this point. And David says, is there anyone from the house of Saul I can show kindness to? And, and, and this guy's name is Mephibosheth, and he's uh, a cripple, and he's uh, full of shame and guilt, and, and, and comes to David and says, why do you want to show me kindness? I'm the son of your, your enemy, the guy who wanted to kill you. And David just says, doesn't even really talk about it. He invites him to his table and says, eat with me. There will always be a place at your table for me. And he just wants to show kindness for the sake of God to this guy. And it's really inexplicable. We don't know why, but it's that kind of shame-erasing act. The only way shame is erased is if we know truly in the deepest corners of our heart that all of our, sin, all of our sins are just forgotten, erased, forgiven, loved past. The only way. So, and God does that for you guys. Today, he does that in Christ. Don't hang it over your head because he doesn't. Uh, it's this new testamental, new covenantal, beautiful cross-centered thing that uh, that God has done God has done for us we're truly truly accepted so and I forgot to mention this but the sake of sounding really anticlimactic here <laughs> uh, an, another way to see this too is to look at the cross is the idea that um, Christ's actions and sufferings Christ's um, shame is actually a fulfillment of David's when, when, when David, or when, uh, yeah, when Christ's on the cross, he quotes Psalms, Psalm 22 in particular, and says, and, and quotes David's experiences over himself. So when David was suffering, Jesus says, actually, it's, that's really about me. I'm suffering now, and his sufferings were a whisper of mine. So if, if that's the case, then, this is a whole other sermon, we're not going to do that today, but uh, if that's the case, all of these mentionings here of enemies surrounding him are typical of what would happen later through him. Christ was surrounded by enemies for you. Christ was, uh, Christ prayed, consider my enemies. They're essentially his songbook and his, and his prayer book. Christ was put to shame. Uh, Christ eventually took refuge, but he was neglected. He was rejected. He was, Psalm 22, 1 says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ was forsaken for you and me as a human being and the son of God. He was he was rejected. So Christ is the ultimate rejected and suffering king. And so when we look at the cross then, we apply this language to him and feeding it back into this guilt and shame idea here that he was violently hated, right? 
David was, David was violently hated in Psalm 25. Christ was violently hated for us as well. So that again, we can say, our king is here. Uh, the true suffering Davidic king. The one that God said, when I bring this new David into the world, everything's going to be made right. He's here. And everything really is, uh, really is okay. So this is what David wants more than anything. And, and again, I want to make sure you guys are seeing this. Um, he, he, wants, he has this hierarchy here that, that's fascinating. He prays more that all this stuff would be true in his heart than his physical enemies be destroyed. And he doesn't go to, you know, he, David does not pray here, God, uh, help me to keep your laws so that my guilt will be taken away. Right? That's not his prayer. Uh, he, says, he just says, God, may you yourself take my sin away. Help me to take refuge in you. Help me to fear you. So he's not putting his trust in himself or his abilities, uh, but rather God. It's, it's very New Testamental. Where's the priests here? Where's the mention of law? Where's any of this stuff? He, he's, the, the way he prays, just going directly to God, is this glimpse that, that one day God himself will be the only mediator. There, there won't be need for priest or law or religiosity anymore, but just simply him. And so uh, David's prayers, the absence of what he says too, says quite a bit, uh, quite a bit as well. But anyway, pardon my guilt and, and, and take away my shame. Again, a secondary blissful, blissful thought here the scriptures have for us. All right, so to start to wrap this up here, um, there's a couple of things I know, and, and I, this is going to sound super Debbie Downer-ish here, I know that, uh, but um, <laughs> two things I know in this uh, new year uh, for myself and all you guys, uh, and that is, one, all of us will suffer this year, a lot more than probably we realize, and some of you are right now, you're in deep, deep suffering, some of you aren't, but I know that you will, and I will uh, as well, to varying degrees, we all will suffer that's uh, one. Two, I know that all of you and me will sin very grievously this year. Know it's going to happen. It's fact. It's fact. Question is, where do you go when that happens? Who is God to you in that moment? How do we pray, right? How do we approach God? How do we view ourselves? Those aren't givens, and we can differ on that. Uh, what do the scriptures say here? Where, where do we proceed to? Uh, the, the, so a couple of things here. I think this psalm should, should craft how we pray. We talked about that a little bit. One, this psalm should craft how we pray and think amidst trial. Uh, you know, if, if the focus of our prayers get, gets too much about the physical, the evil out there and not in here, there's certainly a time to pray for that. The point of this is not to say, oh man, now I feel bad for praying for my headaches. It's not, it's not the point. The point is, that's all we pray for we're starting to sound very, very unbiblical in how we pray. And we start to stack up the hierarchy of our problems in the wrong kind of way, and order and chaos usually ensue uh, at that point. So let this psalm and psalms like it craft how you pray and think, uh, even amidst trial or amidst grievous sin, let it craft how you think of your covenant now with God, how you're in a relationship with him, what he thinks about you. He loves you. He's your redeemer. He's your cleanser. He's a forgiver. He's a lover. Um, note the absence of law here, things like that uh, as well, and how it points ahead to the New uh, Testament that David is kind of a picture of in the Old Testament. So that's the first thing. Second thing is, relatedly, let it get you to Christ. Christ is the ultimate David suffering king. He's the son of David, genealogically, but also by resemblance. He quotes Davidic David Psalms in the Old Testament about his suffering when he's on the cross. 
We have to read the Psalms this way or we're not reading the book as Jesus is. So apply the language of David to the sufferings of Christ. And, and the glimpse of that, we get, we get a lot of that in Psalm 25, but the glimpse we do get is that Christ was surrounded by enemies, our enemies, ultimately, sin and death. He absorbed it, took it on himself for us. He was violently hated. David was violently hated. Christ was even more violently, unto death, hated uh, for, for us and rejoice. God, God says to us in that, you guys, this is why the, the mention of covenant is so important in this psalm. God says to us in that again, that's all that stands in between us now is my son bloody on a cross and an empty tomb. That's it. So, it, so we, we can see his prayer, we can see his song, we can see the covenant, we can see that's all the work of God, not the work of us, and we can rest. We can have blissful thought uh, at that, that God actually thinks that way about me a wretched, wretched sinner. And that's another thing here too is uh, to quote the psalm again or to paraphrase it. It says, God makes his covenant or his salvation known to those who are humble sinners. So if there's an imperative here, I think it is humble yourself. This is what God wants you and me to do. Humble yourself. In other words, you and I know that you and I deserve nothing. We, we don't work for anything. We bring nothing to the table. <laughs> We're too sinful and dead for that. But we are loved. We are loved way more than we can possibly imagine by the creator of the universe. And he shows us that by becoming like us in order to die for us in the person and work of, of Jesus Christ. And so humble yourself and know that this is a covenant alone for sinners. If you're righteous, the New Testament's not for you. Uh, you know, he, he says here in verse 8, Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. God instructs sinners. If you're a sinner, you're in very, very good company in one sense with God. I mean, in one sense, if you're not saved, you're not. I mean, that's actually terrible news. And so the invitation is to come and be saved through Christ. But if you're a sinner who knows, he, who knows that he's loved, then, uh, then you can be in covenant. You know, you can be in relationship with God. Jesus says, I came for the sinful, not the righteous. I came for the sick, not the healthy. If you're healthy, Jesus didn't come for you. We have to be humbled before the presence of God and pray like this and say, God, can you please do absolutely everything because I can do absolutely nothing to save myself. That's, hum that's hum in one sense, humiliating, right? Oh, but so much joy and freedom at the same time. If the gospel trips you up unto that, praise be to God, you're understanding it right. The gospel offended the heck out of people all the time in Jesus' ministry. People just hated him. They wanted to kill him for it. They left him after he said some crazy thing about him being everything and the way, the truth, the life, the door, the bread, the fountain, the, the everything. And people are like, this is crazy. I'm out of here. I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I can do it. I'm a winner. And they left. But Jesus' ministry is saying, no, you're not a winner. You're, you're an absolute failure, but you're loved. And I'm, I'm dying. I'm, I'm becoming a failure for you. I'm bearing your shame and your guilt. He absorbs it. And so that God makes known his covenant to humble sinners. Kind of might seem like an oxymoron, but that's what we are as Christians. We're sinners, and hopefully by God's grace, we're humbled in that, to knowing that God has to do it all. And to know like David, my sin, oh man, it, it is great. <laughs> if there's nothing great about me, it's my sin. It's my greatest sin, my greatest attribute. I, the biggest thing I bring to the table is my sin. That's, that's the greatness of, of, uh, of me. Isaac Watts um, 
says in his commentary on Psalm 25, kind of New, Test, New Testament ifying it a little bit. He says, Where shall the man be found that fears to offend his God, that loves the gospel's joyful sound and trembles at the rod? Their souls shall dwell at ease before their maker's face. Their seed shall taste the promises and their extensive, extensive grace. So guys, in this new year, I think it's a great way to start the year uh, with a refresher on the gospel like we talk about every week, but through the vantage point of this prayer. I encourage you guys to make this your prayer. In fact, even this week, open the psalm, pray through it. Not just read it, but pray it back to God. Thinking about Christ, thinking about the promises of God that find their fulfillment in Christ, the, the forgetful, divine forgetfulness of your sin, how God is immediately accessed here without any kind of intermediary, um, how guilt and shame are taken away, how um, God remembers in Christ his love, great, great love for you. Pray these things uh, and, and remember them and don't graduate from them. Uh, as, as a church, some of you guys know we're going to be 10 years old in September. Hopefully have a big party this fall, TBD on that. I'm just saying that. I think it'll happen. Something better or bigger than we've uh, done in the past. But 10 years old, and I, you know, I think churches can um, <clears throat> have what we call vision drift. You know, or we, we have a vision, and it can drift. It can shift. that We don't even realize. It's kind of like watching a kid grow. You don't look back at a picture from two years ago. Oh, my gosh, I can't believe they were that small. Um, but you don't notice it necessarily in, in the moment, but um, we, have to, we have to watch this. And as leaders, we're responsible for this for you guys, but all of us share in that. If you, if you call this church home, if it's your family, your church home, help us in that. Pray that we would not drift from the gospel to focus more on healings from migraines or something physical, for just a small example, than the gospel. You might think, oh, it's just ridiculous. We'd never do that. Well, actually, it's quite easy. <laughs> If you stop talking about the gospel, that's where we'll be in five years, without question. Uh, we'll, we'll be a, a social club that prays for people's uh, rusty hips and hip surgeries and, and uh, rents and mortgages and stuff, you know? And that's kind of all we'll talk about, and, it's just, and we'll pray about. And, but that's, that's not where we want to be. That's not a church. That's not where God wants us to be. He wants us to have the hierarchy of seeing our biggest problem in the world is us. It's our sin. I don't care what you see when you look out the window, what's threatening you. Pray for that. God cares about all the threats in your life, but if you make the threats out there the biggest threat, we're not thinking distinctly Christianly. Biggest problem in the world is our sin, and that's why Jesus came to be a savior, not a moral teacher. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. That's what we look ahead to at Easter, which we're, which we're headed to, the church calendar-wise. So. But uh, let me pray, and we'll go into communion here uh, to a few minutes. But. God, thanks so much uh, for your grace today in the gospel of Christ through the lens of Psalm 25. Help us to remember you uh, through communion and through song today as we finish our service. Uh, all glory to God for uh, everything that you have done. Not, not to, as, as another one of the psalms says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to you alone be the glory. We pray that that would be a, a major song or motif or mantra for us as a church this year as we've always prayed. Really pray that would be the case this year as we are uh, just through and through Jesus people uh, at, at Hiawatha Church. So, in Christ's name, amen. All right, guys. Uh, well, for the rest of our time, we're going to take, commun take communion together and um, sing through a few more songs uh, as, as a community. Um, as we talked about covenant before the New Testament, this is, uh, communion is really the essence of that, symbolically anyway. 
uh, when Jesus was hours before his death, he broke bread and gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body given for you, and poured out wine and says, this is my blood of the covenant, of the New Testament, that will be for your sins, or given over or poured out for your sins. So he got very clear on why he came. Very clear. No mention of law, no mention of morality. There are other things that maybe he came and did in his ministry that the church will then later embody, but he focused on the top hierarchy thing, right? I came to deal with sin. That's why only thing he talked about at the Last Supper. This is why I'm here, and I want you to not just believe that now, but I want communion to be taken, bread for the church when they gather, to eat bread and wine and remember my body given and my blood shed. Not just that it happened, but that it, it is the way you're sustained before me. It is the way you approach me by believing that it's sufficient to save. That's it. He's making a covenant over and against the Old Testament. He's saying, I'm making a new covenant. I'm the Son of God. Making an, I'm saying, this is how God is going to relate with you now. It's through me and everything I do for you. That's how much I love you. So your responsibility is simply to receive me on my terms and to believe that my death is sufficient uh, for, for you. So here at the church, uh, we practice open communion, which means uh, we, uh, you, can, you don't have to be a member of our church to take communion, but we do ask that you're a Christian, a true believer in the fact that Jesus died for your sins. And if you're not, believe that now. We invite you, God invites you, he loves you, to believe that and then, then to come down and talk to us about it and we can help you a little bit more, uh, take communion for the first time and talk more about what this means. But if you're a Christian, part of Hiawatha or not, we invite you, a uh, member or not, we invite you to, uh, uh, to take with us and to remember and celebrate God's love for us in this. So anytime during the music, that's how we do communion here, anytime during the last set of songs, come on down, break some bread, pour a cup of juice or wine, take it with a friend or a pastor. Myself with Spencer will be up front and some other uh, people, deacon types, people up here can, that can pray for you too. Uh, we'd love to pray for you or by yourself. The front pew is usually pretty open or back where you're seated. Pretty open time of worship and communion, but um, just a little instruction for you there. So let me invite the band up and I'll pray one more time and we'll get started in this last segment here of our time. God, thank you so much for your grace, uh, again, through the gospel, the lens of Psalm 25, uh, but the gospel also through the lens of uh, what this meal is representing, communion that um, really the, the essence now of how we know about God and what he thinks of us is to look at this table. And say, God loved us so much that he sent his son to die a horrific death in our place and to lay all of our sin and guilt and shame upon him. And Jesus, wanting this, cooperating with you, God, uh, God the Son and God the Father, cooperating to make this happen, obediently going to the cross for the joy set before him, endured it, took the hellishness of it that was certainly there upon himself, the rejection from you, even the separation from God that constitutes our sin and hell, took that upon himself as well for those six hours. And God, so help us just to approach the table humbly, uh, not in a state of, I, I had a pretty good week, but in a state of, I had a terrible week. I had a terrible week. Whether I realized it or not, I sinned off the charts in my dreams, in my subconscious, without realizing it. I put myself on the throne of my life over and over and over again, and I'm sorry, and just to believe that Christ died for that, those kinds of sins. And to, to approach humbly as a sinner, not a cleaned up person, but as a sinner for the millionth time, or maybe for some people today here for the first time, and to believe, to have faith 
that Jesus actually saves us from our sins when he dies on that cross and rises again three days later, overwhelming death for us. So bless our time in song and uh, remembrance for communion. Uh, in Christ's name, amen.